would you pray one more time with me? Father, we want to give ourselves to you now and come under the sway of your spirit as you speak to us to your, through your word this morning, and may you direct our hearts to the steadfastness of Christ Jesus, to the love of God, to the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the fellowship that we enjoy with the Holy Spirit, and may you help us to receive this implanted word this morning with meekness, which is able to save our souls. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, we are continuing. We, this is week number three. We are making our way through John's first letter. John is the best friend of Jesus uh, when, during his time on earth, and he wrote the Gospel of John, which you may be familiar with. Um, and then also we are going to consider this morning, chapter 2, verses 3 through 11. This is where we find ourselves in our sequential movement through this letter. So if you're a guest with us, welcome. We hope you will benefit from God's Word this morning in 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 11. In previous weeks, I've talked about the purpose that John is writing, and it's always helpful to revisit that so we know why John is writing this letter. And I've given four reasons that John himself gives for why he writes. And the first reason is to promote our joy, which is a great reason and a, a tremendous blessing. Number two, prevent sin. Number three, protect the truth, and number four, provide assurance. And that fourth reason is probably his main reason, his dominant reason, since throughout this letter he keeps coming back to, this is how you know that you know God. He says that phrase a lot. This is how you know that you have come to know him. This is how we know we are of him. This is how we know we are in him. He talks about it lots of different ways, but he says this is how you can know that you're a Christian. These are the signs of the saved. And so he talks about assurance a lot and how we arrive there, and he gives us three avenues. You remember what these are? The first avenue he gives, which he circles back through throughout this letter, is a doctrinal or theological avenue. It's what we believe about Jesus. See, not every, every belief about Jesus is a true belief about Jesus. People who say, well, I have my relationship with my Jesus well, let's make sure that that Jesus is the Jesus who is and not just the Jesus who we've invented in our own imagination. So John is very keen on helping us identify who the biblical Jesus is. A second test or avenue for assurance is behavioral. We looked at that last week. A moral, ethical, behavioral um, uh, avenue. And he's going to hit on that again this morning, especially in chapter 2, verse, verses 3 through 6. He's going to talk more about this behavior that is to characterize us as God's people if we claim to know him. And then finally, there's a relational avenue of assurance, which he's also going to hit on in the second half of our text this morning in verses 7 through 11. So he's going to talk, he's going to kind of have, we're going to attack kind of two avenues this morning. There's going to be the behavioral one and there's going to be the relational one. And there's overlap there. We don't want to draw these categories too strong because he, he weaves them so seamlessly throughout this letter, and they're all related to each other, and they all apply to each other in various ways. So this morning, we're going to look at three questions, three questions that John is going to pose to us in his writing this morning to determine if we truly know God. This is the language he uses in chapter 2, verse 3. You look there with me. He says, by this, we know that we have come to know him. So this is his intention. He wants you to know that you know. He doesn't want you to be unassured that you know God, and he doesn't want us to be 
false assured. Remember last week we talked about John's method and his pastoral style is to treat us as little children. He treats us with a great fatherly affection, but he's neither too permissive in the way he comes at us, nor is he too punitive. He always has a goal to help us truly know that we know God. So let's dive in here and let's look at question number one. How do we know that we truly know God? Number one, here's the first question. Is my knowledge of Christ leading to obedience to Christ? Is my knowledge of Christ leading to obedience to Christ? Let's look at verse 3 again. He said, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Verse 4, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. So John has a, has a take on the Christian life, the genuine, real Christian life. And he says, it's, it's a life where the knowledge of Christ leads you to obey Christ. And a knowledge of Christ that doesn't lead you to obey Christ is not a true knowledge of Christ. That's the way John reasons. He says there are people who will say, I know him, but if you look at their life, they're not characterized in the main by obedience to Jesus. Rather, they don't seem to care much about obedience to Jesus at all, and yet they care very much that they know him. And they would say that they are a Christian, but there's no mark of obedience in their life. And John would say, that person's a liar because he can't conceive of a knowledge of Christ that doesn't lead to obedience to Christ. And so that's his first question for us this morning. Is my knowledge, is our knowledge of Christ leading us to obedience to Christ? One writer said, theological orthodoxy, no matter how stringent, is hazardous if it is not linked to a living Christian faith. That's just what John's telling us, right? Saying that you know God, but it's not constraining and compelling the way you live, well, that's hazardous. That's dangerous. That's deceptive to ourselves first, but definitely to others. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, again, says, Only he who believes is obedient, and only he who is obedient believes. Let me read that one more time. Only he who believes is obedient, And only he who is obedient believes. Well, that's exactly what John is saying here. John would say, listen, if you truly believe, you're going to obey. And if you truly obey, you believe. He doesn't want us to be deceived. James doesn't either. James chapter 1, verse 22. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. James has the same burden that John does. But Jesus has this burden too. This is where John got it from, right? John chapter 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. This is Matt Carter, who's a pastor in the Austin area, says the following. He says, when I'm participating in an interview with someone who we're thinking about hiring for our church staff, I ask the candidate only one question. When was the last time the thought of Christ and his grace in the gospel led you to weep. If the person we're interviewing can't answer the question, I don't hire them. Why? That seems kind of legalistic. Right? I don't see a sign of the saved as being you weep all the time. Well, he's not talking about that. 
Matt says, because I've realized that there is a direct connection between a person's love for Jesus and that person's obedience to him. So Matt's logic goes like this. No occasional tears, no real love. No real love, no real obedience. No real obedience, no real Christian. Right? So he's not saying that a, a, that a Christian is marked by how many times they cry when they think about Jesus. But he would say, if the thought of Christ and his work has never led you to weep, that should be a concern. That should be a concern. You know, words really matter when we talk about Christ and following him. You know, we often refer to ourselves as Christians or as believers. But do you know what's interesting is that the Bible doesn't really refer to us as that very often? What do I mean? Well, the Bible refers to Christians as Christians three times in the New Testament, usually in a negative way in the book of Acts. The Bible refers to Christians as believers 14 times. But do you know what the overwhelming word that is used to describe Christians in the New Testament is? Disciple. 269 times. Mainly, Jesus himself. Now, why is that so important? That we think first of our... It doesn't mean don't think of yourself as a Christian, don't think of yourself as a believer. No, it's not what I'm talking about. I'm saying, but words matter. And if, if God chose or Jesus chose, to refer to his followers mainly as a disciple, he must have a reason for doing that. Why is that so important? It's because Christ didn't come just to make Christians or believers. He came to make disciples. Now, there is no true disciple that's not a Christian and a believer. I'm not saying that. But my point is, is we need to think of ourselves as disciples because what does it mean to be a disciple? A disciple is a follower, someone who obeys a teacher. At the very core, a disciple is a learner, one who is set on growing and developing in nearly every sphere of their life. Think about this. People learn specific skills from someone else that has developed those skills. If you want to go learn how to be an electrician, you need to get discipled. Because in order to get your electrical certification, it's going to only be attained through an extensive apprenticeship with a more experienced electrician. And when a prospective doctor finishes medical school, he or she invests several years in a residency, which is a discipleship program designed to shadow an experienced physician. This concept of learning directly through the expertise and experience of another is the foundation of what Jesus envisioned when he used the term disciple. This is what it is to be a Christian, is that we are apprenticing ourselves to Jesus for the purpose of greater followership and obedience. And this is why John can't imagine someone who would claim that they know Christ and not obey Christ. Now, two quick qualifications before we move on to our second question. And these are important qualifications, and I want you to hear them. Number one, Keeping the commandments of God, obeying Jesus, does not establish a relationship with him. Okay? I want you to be very clear on this. 
What is the, what's the question that John put before us? Is your knowledge of Christ leading to obedience to Christ? Not is your obedience to Christ leading to knowledge of Christ, although that's true too. The more some, Jesus said in John 14 that if we obey him, the Father will manifest himself to us. You can know God in certain ways only as deep as your obedience goes. But that's not my point here. My point here is that the knowledge or the obedience to what we know does not establish our relationship with God. It's not like if I can just obey a certain number of commandments, that's when Jesus receives me as a disciple. No, that's not how it works. But our obedience to Jesus does verify that we have a relationship with him. Okay, so while it doesn't establish the relationship, it does verify it, that it's a reality, that it's really there. Here's what Pastor Ray Ortland says. He says, the kind of God we really believe in is revealed in how we treat one another. The lovely gospel of Jesus positions us to treat one another like royalty, and every non-gospel position treats us, moves us to treat one another like dirt. But we will follow through horizontally on what we really believe vertically. That's what John's saying, right? If we really know Christ vertically in a real relationship, then it will manifest itself in obedience to him horizontally. But that obedience does not establish a relationship with him, but it does verify that a relationship with him is present. A second qualification. This obedience does not mean perfect obedience. All right? We're not talking about only those who can claim to be a disciple, a true follower of Jesus, are those who are perfectly and perpetually obedient. In, in that case, I would just refer you to one verse that we looked at last week. Now, I want you to see this, first of all. Look at verse, chapter 2, verse 4. This is where we are this week, but I'm going to take you back. Chapter 2, verse 4 says, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Now, John has already used that phrase, he is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Where did he use that phrase? Back in verse 8 of chapter 1. Look there. Chapter 1, verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Right? So this is not a sinless obedience, because as we talked about last week, one of the greatest marks of a Christian is when we do sin, and we will, we confess our sin, we seek to turn from our sin, and we entrust ourselves again to our faithful advocate, the one who died on the cross to propitiate God's wrath, according to chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, and that's Jesus. So it's not a perfect obedience we're talking about here, but it is a real obedience, and it's present. John Calvin says, he does not mean that though that, th- through, that though we wholly satisfy the law, do we keep the commandments, but those who strive according to the capacity of human infirmity to form their life in obedience to God, right? So it's a realistic portrait. We're, we're, we need a Savior. We are weak. We are sinful. But yet we are striving according to the limits of our human frailty and capacity to really form our lives in obedience to God, and that's what John envisions. So the first question is, is my life, is my knowledge of Christ 
leading me to obedience to Christ? Ask yourself that question this morning. And, and my, my call to you would be to focus on two things. Focus on knowing Jesus better and also focus on knowing what he wants to, you to do. Because you've got to do both of those things right, in order to follow him. So is my knowledge of Christ leading to obedience to Christ? Now, the question might be, well, what, what commandments? What are, we supposed, what are we supposed to obey? That's where we're going to go. Second question. Second question is going to take us in a little bit further. Number two, is my obedience to Christ leading to imitation of Christ? Is my obedience to Christ leading to imitation of Christ? Let's continue with John here in chapter 2, verse 5. But whoever keeps his word, that is, obeys him, in him truly the love of God is perfected. That is, not that he loves God perfectly or that God loves him perfectly. John doesn't use perfect in that way. What he means is the love of God is having its intended outcome. Right? When we love, when we obey, that is a manifestation that the love of God is working powerfully in our lives. That's the way John uses that phrase. By this we may know that we are in him. Verse 6, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. There's imitation. Okay, so the obedience that John has in mind is an obedience of a disciple. Someone who's conforming his life to the pattern of his master. Right? He sees the way Jesus is living and he says... Disciples live that way. That's what obedience is. It's living the way Jesus lived. And this is what Jesus himself said in John chapter 14, verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Then John chapter 14, verse 23, Jesus answered and said, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. John chapter 15, verse 10, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. See the imitation there? Jesus is saying, look, I abide in God's love. I keep his commandments. I abide in my Father's love. Now you do the same with mine. So it's live to me like I live to my Father. I seek to live a life of obedience to my Father, you seek to live a life of obedience to me. You've heard the phrase, like father, like son. That applies to Jesus. But how about like, sa like saint, like savior? Right? Or like savior, like saint. That's the way you're supposed to live. So you look at the savior, you look at the saint. It's supposed to be some reflection there. Jesus' point is, we can't claim to know him if we don't show him. Showing him reveals knowing him. So, in what ways then are we called to walk as he himself has walked? Well, I'm not going to claim to be at all exhaustive here. I've got five. I'm going to go quickly. Five ways we are called to imitate Jesus. These are not exhaustive. These are not the only things. Can I say that again? These are not exhaustive. These are not the only things. But they are examples where imitation is held up in the New Testament. So the first one, the first way we are called to walk as he walked or imitate him is in righteousness and purity. 
1 John chapter 2, verse 29, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. 1 John chapter 3, verse 3, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. 1 John chapter 3, verse 7, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. So he's, John's like, God's righteous, God's pure, God's children are righteous, are pursuing righteousness and purity as well. So that's righteousness and purity. Number two, we imitate him in humility and service. John chapter 13, verse 35 says, For I have given you an example, Jesus says, that you should do just as I have done to you. Now in John chapter 13, what's Jesus doing? He's washing stinky disciples' feet. He's doing things for other people that are inconvenient and dirty and just a little bit annoying. But that's what he's called us to do for, as our, for our brothers and sisters. Imitate him in his service and humility. Consider nothing beneath you. Well, somebody else should take care of that. No, nothing is beneath us. Cleaning the, to- the pee off the toilet seat, not beneath us. No, whatever, whatever it requires, the lowest, most menial kind of tasks. We're to imitate our Savior in humility and service. Number three, we imitate him in patience, in patience. Romans chapter 15, we who are strong, that is stronger Christians who who are in, in a seeking to follow the Lord in a more faithful way, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself. Then he says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. We are patient toward each other and bear with each other in our failings. Number four, we imitate him in perseverance under suffering, remaining faithful to God even when life is terrible. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. Imitate me in this. Just as I was mistreated, falsely accused, abused, suffering unjustly, not knowing I'm entrusting myself to God, counting on him and his grace. So 1 Peter says, Follow in his footsteps. Be like that. Imitate him in perseverance under suffering while entrusting yourself to God. And then fifthly, in seeking the lost. So we are to imitate him in righteousness and purity, humility and service, patience, perseverance, and in seeking the lost. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. So whether we eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, Just as I, Paul says, try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So how are we to imitate Paul as Paul imitates Christ, which is ultimately an imitation of Christ, right? If Paul's imitating Christ and he's calling us to imitate him, he's just calling us to imitate him because he's imitating Christ. So we're ultimately following Christ. And Paul is saying, I am pursuing the lost. I am disadvantaging myself 
so that others might be saved. And he says, imitate me because that's what Jesus did for us. Did Jesus disadvantage himself for our salvation? You better believe it. Think of all that he gave up. And he did it willingly. And he did it out of love. And he would still do it if he could do it again. But perhaps most of all, in this context, I think John has one main thing he's wanting us to imitate in terms of Christ's Christ's pattern of life. It's not to say that those other things I've just spent time on aren't true. Obviously, they are. Righteousness and purity, humility and service, patience, perseverance, seeking the lost, all that's to be imitated. But the main thing that John has here is in terms of his sacrificial love. That's what John envisions when he's calling us to walk in the same way he walks. Now, where do you get that, Pastor Mark? It's because chapter, verse 7 follows verse 6. Okay, so whenever you get to a question in the Bible and you say, what does that mean? Keep reading. That's the, some of the best Bible reading you, uh, study tool you'll ever have. Just keep reading. He'll answer it. He'll talk about it. Don't stop there and say, well, I wonder where it talks about this in other parts of the Bible. That's a good place to do first. You can do that. Do that, I should say, that's a good place to do second. But the thing to do first is just keep reading. And so what he says in verse 6, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way he walked, you say, okay, he's going to talk about that now. He's going to talk about what does he mean to imitate Christ in the way he walks. And he begins in verse 7 by saying, Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you've heard from the beginning. And then skip down to verse 9. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Verse 10, whoever says, whoever loves his brother abides in the light. So his idea is love. We imitate, we're imitating Jesus in his pattern of sacrificial love. And this is what Paul called us to do in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. He said, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So we're on good biblical ground here. John would agree with us. Jesus would agree with us. Paul would agree with us. We're, we're heading in the right direction. And here's our third and final question. So we've talked about, is, the, is our knowledge of Christ leading to obedience to Christ? Number two, is our obedience to Christ leading to imitation of Christ? Number three, as one thing leads to another, is my imitation of Christ leading to love for others? Is my imitation of Christ leading to love for others. Now, if you're familiar with the Gospel of John and John's writing there, this, this, this phrase in John, 1 John chapter 2, verse 7 will not sound so strange to you. Right? Notice what he says in chapter 2, verse 7. Behold, I am writing you no new commandment but an old commandment. Where did Jesus talk about an old commandment and a new commandment? Say, that sounds similar to John 13. And you would be right. John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35. We know this, right? This, is, this verse is as old as the beginning of our discipleship. You should have been taught this day one. John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. He says it again in John chapter 15, verses 12 and 13. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one such as this, but that someone lay down his 
life for his friends. So John says here, that's an old commandment, but it's also a new commandment, right? Because it's patterned now after a new example, an example of Jesus' sacrificial love. So the fact that God, God's been telling people to love one another for a long time. Leviticus 19 talks about loving your neighbor as yourself. So it's, not, it's an old commandment, but it's a new in the sense that Christ has come, embodied it, lived it out, shown it in its greatest manifestation, and they've known it since they were first Christians. And he says, so I'm writing to you, not some new commandment necessarily, but an old one. And then he says in verse 8, at the same time, it's a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him, which is true in Jesus. John 13, 34 and 35, a new commandment, love one another as I have loved you. Now that's new. We've never had that example of Christ laying down his life so sacrificially. That is the newness of this old commandment. And he says, it's a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. He's just saying, this, these are the days that the Lord has come. These are the days in which the fulfillment of God's promises are taking place. Darkness is passing away. The, the true light's already shining. And then he says in verse 9, Therefore, whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness, and whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there's no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. He says, I can't, I can't understand someone who would claim to know Christ, but not obey him. I can't envision a person who says they would know Christ and not seek to imitate him. I can't think of a person who would seek to say they know Christ and not love others, because that's the essence of what Christ's life was. Christ loved us so much that he was willing to leave his place of glory with the Father in order to pay for our sins on the cross. We likewise, as followers of him, can refuse, cannot refuse to lay down our rights and our privileges in order to meet the needs of others. Jesus spent his life in service to others. And similarly, we are called to spend our lives in service to others. While many of us, maybe some of us, will literally have to die in order to save another person's life. That, that will be rare. But more likely, we will lay down our lives in a multitude of smaller ways over the course of our lives. I think of it like this picture. I wonder if this is about ready. If not, yeah, this picture. This is the life we're called to live. Now, don't think of it just as a father and a son, although that's true. That's the first application, right? See what's going on? The father has given, over the course of his son's life, pieces of his own life. My life for yours. My life for yours. And he sees that his son has a piece that is missing. And what does the father do? He offers that as well. Now, this is not a call to be a doormat. Okay? But it is a call to be sacrificial. It is a call to be sacrificial. And that is the life of a Christian for every brother and sister in Christ. And by the end of our lives, brothers and sisters, may we be like that father, but you can't even see him. We've given so much away 
we've laid our lives down so consistently and so faithfully that other people around us seem full, but it's because you've emptied yourself profoundly. And only God will know that. But I'll tell you what, rewards in heaven are divvied out that way. By how much you've imitated Jesus in laying aside your privileges, rights, things, whatever, for the benefit of others. So what could that look like? Well, it could look, you can put the picture away now. Thanks for showing that. Well, let me talk about it in different ways. It could look like young people, youth, teens. How about, you know, following Jesus and stemming the tide of the culture, which would tell you, you know, just be concerned about yourself. Just, you know, be eaten up with your agenda and what you want to do and maybe try to fit other people into your life and do things for them, but only if it's fun, right? That's not the way of Christ. Start serving people, loving people, especially those first primarily in your own family, but rather than seeking to be served at home, at school, at church, think of ways you can pour yourself out. You can love others. You can bless them. Husband, wife, about setting aside your desire to be served and finding a way to serve each other. And if both of you will commit yourself to that wholehearted pursuit, you will have an absolutely amazing marriage. What about parents? Can we set aside our rights, I say this to myself as well, to rest quietly after a hard day's work, to spend time with our children and pour ourselves out? And realize, dads, that the work starts when we get home. What about employers? Those of you who are in management and leadership positions in your job. When appropriate, can you refrain from giving overly harsh but deserved criticism of employees in order to work alongside of them and help them to improve? Giving up your time and your energy to help others, even when it's costly and hard and What about older folks who are approaching retirement or maybe in retirement? Can you give up part of your spare time that you labored years to earn in order to bless younger people by investing in them after the pattern of Titus 2 and giving away your wisdom and your life and your love to others? That'd be a good way to spend your time. Be a bridge builder. This is the poem, The Bridge Builder, by William Allen Allen Dromgoul. I want you to listen to this poem, and may we all strive to be bridge builders. An old man going a lone highway came at the evening cold and gray to a chasm vast and deep and wide, through which was flowing a sullen tide. The old man crossed in the twilight dim. The sullen stream had no fear for him, but he turned when safe on the other side and built a bridge to span the tide. Old man, said a fellow pilgrim near, you're wasting your strength with building here. Your journey will end with the ending day. You will never again pass this way. You've crossed the chasm deep and wide. Why build this bridge at evening tide? The builder lifted his old gray head. Good friend, in the path I have come, he said, there followed after me today a youth whose feet must pass this way. 
this chasm that has been as naught to me, to that fair-haired youth may a pitfall be. He too must cross in the twilight dim. Good friend, I am building this bridge for him. Oh, get a vision, senior saints. Get a vision for the ways you can pour yourself out, dying on your sword for the next generation of, to know and glorify God as you have lived your life to that end. So what is this? And this, this is the way I want to wrap it up. What does this look like? Look like practically this love for one another? Well, we've illustrated it in a number of different spheres with youth and marriage and parents and work and in retirement. But what, what does love look like in, in, in the church? In the church, because this is John's primary sphere, right? When he talks about loving one another and loving your brother, he's not just talking about loving everyone, although it's not exclusive to that. Obviously, we're called to love our neighbors, not just our brothers. But John's focus here is to love our brother, our brother or sister in Christ. And so loving one another in Christ means doing the one another's. And without turning you to all those passages, let me just summarize what love looks like. We are to be at peace. We are to serve. We are to be devoted. We are to honor. We are to live in harmony. We are to accept. We are to instruct. We are to greet. We are to wait. We are to show concern. We are to carry burdens, speak truth, forgive, be kind, be patient, be compassionate, submit, consider, encourage, spur, confess, pray, and show hospitality. Notice the one another's that do not appear here. For example, sanctify one another, humble one another scrutinize one another, pressure one another, embarrass one another, corner one another, interrupt one another, defeat one another, sacrifice one another, shame one another, marginalize one another, exclude one another, judge one another, run one another's lives, confess one another's sins. I didn't read those. Let's not be occupied with those. So whatever our station in life, we should always look for ways to spend our lives for the sake of others. Christian love is costly, and it looks for ways to give of itself to others every day. Every day there are little ways we can sacrifice some of our rights and privileges in order to love those around us, especially those in the body of Christ. So let's look this day, this week, this month, this year, and for the rest of our lives to give up something in order to do good to another brother or sister. And remember, you get this love, you get this obedience, you get this imitation out of your knowledge of Christ. So let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. Because it's the knowledge of Christ in the gospel that gives birth to all this. I've talked a lot about obedience and imitation and love and commandments and all that stuff. But remember, the passage that we read and have been talking about this morning in chapter 2, verses 3 to 11, follows chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. 
My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we've come to know him, that one, that one who laid his life down for us, that gave himself up for us, that advocated for us before the Father, whose righteous life counts for ours, whose death counts for ours, whose propitiation canceled our sin debt and propitiated God's wrath against it. It's by knowing him and knowing that, knowing the way he laid down his life for us that will lead us to greater obedience, that will lead us to greater imitation, that will lead us to loving others. We don't focus, first and foremost, on the fruit. We focus on the root. Tend to the root. Tend to the root, and the fruit will come. Where Christ is received and loved, and treasured, and valued, obedience is increased, imitation is observable, and love is always, always present. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the time in your word this morning to be reminded of the most valuable things in all the universe, which is who Jesus is and what he's done for us, that we might be brought into greater conformity to his life, that we might be brought into a place of increasing obedience, of striving to imitate the high and holy example that our Savior has laid down before uh, for us, and to live that life of love that you've called us to live. God, who is sufficient for these things? We are not sufficient in and of ourselves to obey you, to imitate you, to love others as you have loved us. It's only by being, as Jesus taught us, abiding in the vine, that we can draw strength as weak, limping, dry branches as his life courses through us by believing his word and repenting of sin and resting upon him and praying and asking for greater grace and strength every day that we will be brought to a place of increasing obedience and imitation and love. So do that good work in us. Remind us of the gospel. Remind us of your grace to us and help us to celebrate that in such a way that it that the penny drops in our lives in an ongoing way, that more and more we begin to get the gospel, but more and more, more importantly than that, that the gospel continues to get us, gets more and more of us, so that we then are in turn uh, able to live out that life you've called us to live. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.